This is Setting the Table, a podcast from the Table Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Little Rock. I'm Steve Schubert. Welcome to our podcast. Today we wrap up our look at the three core values of the table, wonder, friendship, and restoration. For today's podcast, we're exploring restoration and why that's so important to our work at the table. Here's Senior Pastor Michael Gallup. So as a bit of a reminder for those of you, uh, we're in the season of Lent. We're in our fifth Sunday. Like You guys were like, holy moly, Easter's two Sundays away. So yeah, we're just trucking along, along uh, trucking right along uh, as we approach Resurrection Sunday. And as we've been doing so during the season of Lent, one of the things that we have been looking at is the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're in a series called The Lord's Table. And the idea behind that is, how are we the table, as we're, we refer to ourselves? How are we shaped? How are we formed? How are we informed by who Jesus is and what he has done? And so we're looking at kind of sample story, sample experiences, sample uh, teachings from the life of Jesus to help us understand what we value and what we do here at the table. Uh, and today I want us to look at our third value, which is the value of restoration. If you guys recall, we talked about our movement of ministry, modeled after Jesus, who, uh, as he kind of comes on the scene in his ministry, goes to a solitary place on the mountain and prays. And we talked about the nature of wonder there, uh, the nature of connecting and relating to a God who is present, and being uh, discovering there that we are beloved, and that God is not found only on mountains. He is not left there when we retreat, but that he is with us always. And so we descend out of that wonder and into community, healthy, uh, mutual love for one another. And we express that in our value of friendship. As we saw last week, there's these escalating metaphors of connection and intimacy in the scriptures. And Jesus on the night he betrays looks to his disciples and he says, I, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. We talked about the voluntary nature of friendship, the desire to put our lives on the line for one another to, as Jesus said, love one another. And I believe it is out of that community, out of that connection, friendship with each other, that we can begin to live out um, our calling in the world. And that movement story, after Jesus calls the disciples to him, he then, they all together, go into the neighboring communities and begin to preach the gospel. They begin to announce the arrival of the kingdom of God, cast out demons, heal the sick. They begin to do this miraculous and beautiful, meaningful, restorative mission. And so today I want to talk a little bit about what is our value of restoration. What does it look like? How how does our relationships, birth out of wonder, begin to inform and instruct how we do uh, and think about mission restoratively here at the table? So growing up, I had this next-door neighbor called Aunt Betty. I'm sorry, Miss Betty. I have an Aunt Betty. She was not my next-door neighbor. So my next-door neighbor was Miss Betty. And so she already had that going for her because I really like my Aunt Betty. So anyway, I loved Miss Betty. And she would do, like, after-school care for me when I was this little kid. So when I would get dropped off by the bus, I would just go to Miss Betty's house. And she was this older, widowed woman. And, you know, her house was kind of had a funny smell to it. But she would make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and she had, like, the really good peanut butter. And my mom always bought the crappy peanut butter, so I was really excited and loved eating those peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I still remember this. And and to me, Miss Betty was just kind of an extension of family. She was this person that just 
you know, was just a part of our life just as much as my mom and my brother and those like that were. In fact, when I got a little bit older, when I was, I didn't have to go to Miss Betty's, I could just go home alone, I still sometimes would go over there. In fact, I remember one time in particular as I was coming home, uh, I went to go in our front door and there was a little lizard. When I say a little lizard, is like this big, you know, one of those little like, uh, I don't even know what they're called, but uh, South Carolina, if you guys know lizard, like biology, maybe you know which that is. Anyway, well, 10-year-old me was not very brave and uh, was scared to death. I think I started crying. <laughs> I was like, I can't get in my house because this lizard is on the steps. Because I didn't want to like, I don't want to shoo it. I didn't want to hurt. I didn't know what to do. So I went around back to try and go in. There was another lizard at my back door. So I'm scared. I'm crying. I don't know what to do. Of course, I decide well, I'm going to go to Miss Betty's house. So I went across the street, knocked on her door, and I'm in tears. She says, what's the matter? I said, Miss Betty, there's a lizard on my front steps. <laughs> and she didn't laugh at me, and she didn't, like y'all just did. She didn't, <laughs> um, <laughs> she didn't change, she just said, come on in, made me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And then we went over, and we, she shooed the lizard for me. So growing up, my experience was this idea of loving your neighbor was just it wasn't even like a thought like it just was it was just the water that I swam in as a fish like this was reality and like as I've told you before I didn't grow up a Christian and if you were to tell me like the entirety of the Christian faith could be summed up in this idea of just loving your neighbor as yourself I I would have I would have been like that's it (laughs) like that's all you have to do like you have to love Miss Betty like that's the easiest thing in the world. I love Miss Betty like family simply because of where she lived. Now, obviously, she expressed a reciprocation of that love, but just because of her proximity, she was a part of my life in a meaningful and relational way. There is few things more natural to me than loving our neighbor. And and in a way, it was a similar context that Jesus gives this teaching. In the first century Jewish world, neighbor love was as simple and clear as just that. I mean, whoever you lived with is who you loved. This was actually helped by the fact that you generally lived with your family. Um, As the family would grow, they would generally kind of add on to the compound, you know, the structure. And so you'd have many rooms in my father's house. That's when Jesus says that, they totally get that idea. You know, you have a room in your father's house, this family house that's shared. So your neighbors literally were your family. And you would live in a sort of shared lifestyle. You would, similar to the way Miss Betty shared her peanut butter and jelly, but but on a bigger scale, you would have all things in common. If you needed something, you'd go to your neighbor. And that's just the way the world works. You see this kind of popping up in other parables that Jesus gives us, like the persistent neighbor who's knocking on the door because they need something to, to feed their, their guests who just come in the middle of the night, and how they just like keep knocking, keep knocking, and finally it's like the middle of the night, and their neighbor still opens, still gives them something. They're kind of frustrated, but they understand like this is the society we live in. Like We have an obligation to one another to help each other, to be there for each other. And so this idea that the great commandment, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, would have this pair that was just like it, I think is indispensable from it, of loving your neighbors yourself, was, was a fascinating but kind of a no-duh reality for the Jews. Like, yeah, I just love my neighbor. Um, like I said, this isn't just cup of sugar stuff. This is uh, intense familial connection. 
To live beside somebody is to relate to them, is to be bound to them, to love them. And it was in this context we find Jesus teaching on this great commandment. Verse 25. It is dark up here. Just then, <laughs> the kids, kids are fired up. Uh, just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, the man asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? So this is a kind of a, a fascinating turn. This guy gives a wonderful answer. Like, this is exactly what Jesus will tell other people when they say, what's the greatest commandment? He says what this man says to him. This guy's nailed it. You know, Sunday School 101, he is getting, you know, all checks. He's getting little gold stickers. Like, he's killing it. And yet, it says, and the editor gives us this, uh, um, this insight into this man's intentions, wanting to justify himself. He says, who is my neighbor? And the reason why is because they had a very clear understanding of who was my neighbor. We just talked about that. And I think this man's trying to ask, like, okay, some, you know, there was a rabbinic teaching that would say, well, your neighbor means just the people who live beside you, whoever you come into contact with. There's others that maybe would say that this love extends beyond that. And so he's basically asking Jesus, where's the line? Just how literal is this command? What's fascinating is Jesus does not directly answer him, but instead shares a story. And I know we just read it, but let's review. Jesus replies, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers, who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, which is a day's wage, gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more uh, you spend. Which of these do you think, of these three do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. And the man said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. What Jesus is doing here is he is, in some ways, he's dismantling uh, all of the barriers and the boundaries that this man has set to who his neighbor is. There is no line. He's asking, where do I draw the line? How far away is too far to consider to be my neighbor? And Jesus is obliterating that. And the reason why, maybe we lose that idea because the cultural characters, you know, who's a Levite, who's a priest, who's a Samaritan, you know, without getting into detail, you know, way down that track, uh, what this man is asking, he's a lawyer, when, he's, when he hears in the story that someone is going to be in the ditch and needs help, Jesus begins to give these kind of likely characters to walk by, the priest and the Levite. But for this man, he's a lawyer. He kind of saw these as being the folks that wouldn't help. These were kind of different religious order people from his path. And so the expectation is that that third person is going to be a person like him. That's going to be the person that's going to show up. He's going to be the hero of the story. I mean, we all do this. 
When we go to movies, we initially and almost automatically associate with the protagonist, the hero. We always see ourselves in the role of the hero. So Jesus is telling the story, and he's like, of course those Levites wouldn't do it. They're too caught up in this and that, you know. And of course the priests wouldn't do it because, you know, they're, they have this problem. It's, it's going to be a guy like me. It's going to be a guy like me. And the hero shows up, and it's the exact opposite kind of guy. It's a Samaritan. You guys don't know, the Samaritans were, uh, to give it a nasty term, what they would call half-breeds. Somewhere along the line, they were descendants of Jews who had intermarried with non-Jews, with Gentiles. And this was seen as being just awful. This was just one of the worst things that they could do. And so they would see these people who were close to them in proximity. The Samaria was basically embedded within the Jewish area. These were their neighbors. And yet these were villains. These were half-breeds. These were enemies. And all of a sudden, it's the enemy who is the hero. Jesus turns the tables completely on his expectations. Turns the story, the tables completely on Who could possibly be his neighbor? Jesus says, if this Samaritan is the one being the neighbor, not just the neighbor who desires a love, but the neighbor who is extending love, there are no boundaries. I think in some ways that this parable illustrates what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Jesus says that our love knows no boundaries. And, and I want to say that this is revolutionary in this time. How far does the love of neighbor go? To the ends of the earth. We should, as I said, even love our enemies. So Jesus takes this command and reveals to us that it is a metaphor, that your neighbor is anyone. And in so doing, is revolutionary. But I would argue that for us today, if Jesus was telling us this parable, that maybe there would be a shift, and that what might be just as revolutionary for us is for us to take this command literally. After my experience with Miss Betty, I had far more trouble connecting and loving my neighbors the rest of my life. Maybe you guys have had this experience. As we've moved throughout my story, it's been a kind of a fascinating journey to have a bit of an expectation that people would be like Miss Betty, whose house would be open, whose cupboards would be open, whose heart would be open, who would share everything with me. And that has simply not been the case. I remember when I moved to Colorado for seminary, my wife's pregnant, you know, we're, we're moving into an apartment complex, and, you know, I was expecting that. I didn't know anybody, so we had no one to help us. So we're kind of unloading this trailer. Basically, I'm unloading it by myself. Michaela's carrying the light boxes because... You know, she doesn't need to carry the heavy boxes. She's, she was, uh, I think at the time, she was seven months pregnant, so she was far along. And I'm like, I could really use some help, and there's all these people walking around who were my new neighbors, and I'm, I'm you know, kind of looking helpless and not being, you know, letting everybody know explicitly, will you help me? But I'm just expecting someone to be a good neighbor and say, hey, do you need a hand? No one offered to help. And, and uh, so then I started to kind of put myself out there a little more. I remember a person walking by, and I said, Hi. And they looked down and just kept walking. It didn't say anything to me. And here I am. I'm tired from moving. We just drove cross country. My wife's pregnant. And I'm like, what did we get ourselves into? We're not in the South anymore. But 
at the same time, it just felt uh, isolating. It felt like we were alone. It was tough. I mean, we, we're not the person who broke down in the ditch in need of you know, bandaging and hotels, but we needed some help. And all these people passed by, my literal neighbors. And I think that that's not just an isolated story. That's just not my experience in Colorado. Uh, I think it's the reality of the world we live in. We've, we've talked about this here at the table, the, the isolated culture. Last week, we talked about how damaging it is to our health, how alone we are, that it's one of the worst things that can actually happen to our bodies is to be lonely. That's worse than cigarette smoke. It's worse than being obese. It's one of the leading you know, contributors to early deaths in our world isolated culture that, that is, in many ways, killing us. I mean, just think about the way our neighborhoods are even constructed. As some of you guys are living in older neighborhoods like me. You know, you've got front porches, and we've got sidewalks, and the, the communities are really geared around connecting. But in the newer communities, particularly in our suburbs, the front porch has been replaced by a garage, and the sidewalks have been replaced by wider roads for more cars. Instead, instead of coming home and sitting on your front porch and engaging with your neighbors as they're walking, you whip into your automatic doored garage, closes behind you, and you're ushered into your inner sanctuary where no one can mess with you. I mean, our very neighborhoods have been designed to isolate us, to protect us, to keep us from knowing, especially from loving, our neighbors. I think this is... Um, I think it's one of, one of the biggest problems that we live in. I mean, there's so many crazy things happening in the world, so I'm not trying to say, like, not knowing your neighbor is equal to the opiate epidemic. But I think in some way, in just a small way, that maybe there's some connection, that maybe, maybe this lack of knowing the names of the people who live beside of us is affecting this world in some really tremendously detrimental ways. I mean, I get this. I'm an introvert. It, it scares me to death to do small talk with somebody I don't know. It, it scares me to introduce myself to a new person. I mean, I, and I get it. I mean, I'd rather go to Walmart and get sugar than go across the street and ask Wally. That was Wally, Walmart. Sorry. This is a dumb joke. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, Sam. Yeah. Sam Walton. Yeah. No, but I mean, seriously, I, I, I don't want to... <laughs> I love the delayed laughter. Okay, that makes me feel better. I think the question then is, then, okay, what do we do about this? If that's the case, if we live in a world where um, this literal definition of loving your neighbor seems like an amazingly huge hurdle, uh, isn't a realistic expectation for the worlds we live in, how do we begin to address it? I think that as we usually do when we have to ask these difficult questions, it's, it's good to look to Jesus. What did he do? What was his example? Cliff referenced this in his prayer, actually, this morning. But in the incarnation account in John 1, we're given this beautiful story of, of God who came down. Eugene Peterson in the message translates it in this kind of really special way that's just captured my imagination and stood with me. It said that the word, meaning this kind of huge, massive idea of a thing, this, this eternal God who created all things and all things came into being through him, took on flesh, which means he became human. It says, and he moved into the neighborhood. He became our neighbor. 
In that same prologue in the book of John, it says, and the world, the people that he was sent to did not accept him, did not know him. For Jesus to love his neighbor was, in many ways, to love his enemy. Jesus loved people who would betray him, loved people who would deny him. He loved people who would reject him. He loved his enemy. And in that love of enemy, he moved us into greater relationship. He moved us into a new category. He moved us into a world of being his neighbor. And I would argue from what we read last week, he moved us into even greater intimacy of being his friend. And so Jesus lived a life that was open. We talk about hospitality a lot. Our first Sunday here for our grand opening, we talked about that's really the core of who we are. We're the table, that there's a space for you at our table, which is to say we are making space in our lives, in our times, in our calendars for one another, for our neighbor. And I think you see this constantly in the life of Jesus. It's it's not just around meals, but man, it seems like he never turned down an invite to any party that he was ever invited to. He's at at a Pharisee's house. He's at a tax collector's house. You see him over and over again at all kinds of different people's homes, enjoying their company, being present, making space in his schedule, in his life, in his heart. But you see this just in his day-to-day life. As he's walking down the road, his ability to stop and take a question from a teacher. You see this in him at the well, being in a public sphere, a place where people gathered to meet and to connect, that there he is lingering, and so that he has a transformative relationship with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. I think Jesus begins to give us this model that we begin with those who are immediately present, that we make space in our lives. One way, one tangible way that we, uh, or one tangible implication for us here at the table is how we talk about our mission. Uh, oftentimes churches, when we talk about the object of our mission, meaning who we're kind of working towards, you know, who are we trying to help, so to speak? Who are we trying to connect with? We use very distancing terms. We, we really begin to to label people in this us and them sort of categories. So we're going to, yeah, the lost, the unchurched, the nuns, the, yeah, it's all these negative connotations. So all of a sudden, because you're not one of us, we're going to put this negative label on you and really create a distance. And what we're saying there is we're putting ourselves in this sort of Messiah complex place where I've got the answers, I've got the goods, and you don't. I think it's well-intentioned. I really do. I think it's out of a place of compassion and desire to see people be helped. But I, but I don't think we have thought through the implications. And I think we've missed the fact that Jesus gives us the word. He gives us the metaphor here. Neighbor. We're not called necessarily to save the lost or bring in the unchurched, but we're called particularly, as Jesus says here, to love our neighbor. If you begin to think about that term, no longer is it us and them, but it's We. Because my neighbor, well, I'm their neighbor. All of a sudden, we're in this together. In the very naming and the, and the posture that we have, we begin to see what Jesus is doing in his making space. By calling someone who is his enemy, his neighbor, he's expressing love. He's expressing welcome. And that gives him this opportunity then to build these relationships that culminate in friendship. So, what does that mean? What does that look like for us at the table? 
how do we live out a life uh, and a mission of making space to love our neighbors as ourselves? I think it starts with us taking, like I said, this command literally. What does it look like to love your literal neighbors? Um, I was challenged in Denver uh, with a grid map. This was like a big movement out in Denver. It's called The Art of Neighboring. It's a decent book if you guys have the time to look it up. It's by a guy named Dave Runyon, R-U-N-Y-O-N. Uh, Dave's a pastor out in Colorado, and he got together with a group, and they were trying to figure out how to serve the city best, and they began to talk to their local councilman and mayor, and they asked the question, what does the city need from the church? And he said the answer that he got changed his life. You know, he expected it to be like, we need more, you know, hours down at the homeless shelter, or we need more money down here, or we need, he expected it to be some other sort of answer, and what the mayor spoke to him <laughs> He said, we need the church to be good neighbors. And all of a sudden, it was a prophetic word. Here it was, this voice outside of the church calling him to do exactly what Jesus had said was the most important thing to do. We need you all to be good neighbors. And the mayor then asked this group of pastors, how many of you guys know the names of your next door neighbors? And he said, he looked around the room, and he saw all these heads begin to sink down. And I I don't want to ask that question in, in a place of shame. But I think it's a, a question of challenge. How many of you guys know the names of your next door neighbors? That's good. I mean, it's like we actually, so what we did in Colorado is we drew a grid. We put our house or our apartment complex, whatever, right in the center, and like a tic-tac-toe, you know, and we had to say, do we know this person, this person? And if we did it, if we couldn't fill their name, then we made it our goal to just say, we're going to reintroduce ourselves. We're going to go knock on their doors or catch them outside. <laughs> and uh, we're going to, sorry. That's an inside joke for nobody here. Um, gonna, <laughs> so I'm just laughing at my own joke. I apologize. Uh, but we're going to go outside and begin to introduce ourselves and get to know these people. I mean, I think that, that sometimes it's just that much of a step. Uh, that was our goal when we moved into our neighborhood here in Stiff Station. We had a actually radically different experience than when we moved into Colorado. When we showed up here, people were like bending over backwards to move stuff in. Some of you guys were there to help us move stuff in. It, it felt very different. And the first thing that we did was we threw a big party. We invited all of our neighbors. We wanted to be a good neighbor. And in fact, it, it caused a little confusion within, like we were just beginning to think about this thing as a church and what we were going to do. And we're like, well, what is this party? How? And, and I agree, it was kind of confusing. Like, what is this? And, and we really kind of came down on ideas. Like, this isn't necessarily a promotion for the table or anything like that. It is my friends are helping me and Michaela be good neighbors. We simply want to be present. We want to offer our space, offer our cooking, offer our friendship. And we've seen tremendous friendships rise out of that. But, but I think there's other just tangible steps that we can do to help us uh, in this I think, call uh, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I'd love to get some feedback from you guys. What, what are some ways that you think we can live that out? I'll give you uh, one more example just to kind of stir the pot and give you some time for your brains to, to process a little bit. Live in your front yard. So many of us live in our backyards. Our grills are back there, our playgrounds, if we got kids are back there. We do most of our time back there. And, and the reality is maybe our houses are just designed that way. We've got a big porch and a deck and a yard, and there's just not much going on in our front. But as much as possible, try and live in your front yard. I, I kind of hate uh, working in the flower beds in my front yard, but I do it. 
because I've met so many people simply by pulling weeds or walking by, and they're like, oh, man, that sucks. <laughs> and they're looking at me like sweaty and dirty and fighting an uphill battle. But we've connected. You know, I sit on my porch and talk to people who walk by. We walk our neighborhoods. It's just simple things that really don't detract from my life but kind of add to it. Just get out of my house, enjoy the outside, and get to know people. Um, in fact, Mary Grace got a bike for Christmas, and she's ever increasingly in, uh, uh, enlarged her map of you know, traversable area around our house. And uh, we had no idea how influential our daughter has become in our neighborhood because uh, we went for a walk with Coco, and we started meeting people. And they're like, oh, you're Mary Grace's parents. <laughs> you know, and they're like, yeah, okay. Everybody we met knew our daughter because she had met everybody, had pet every dog in the neighborhood, and played with every kid. And, and all of a sudden, we had this common bond. And uh, it's coming down. Um, in fact, one of, the, one of the more transformative relationships that have grown out of uh, my connection with my neighbors came out of Mary Grace riding her bicycle around the neighborhood. So it's this idea of live in your front yard. I think we, we, we have to take seriously this call that I think everybody, I mean, this is one of those things that like, I don't care whether you're a Christian or not. You hear these words, love your neighbors yourself. Everyone's like, yeah, I'm, I'm down for that. That's a good idea. And yet a lot of us struggle, I think, because of the cultural norms, just the way our world is set up right now to actually do it. Um, but the idea is to extend yourself, to make that space as scary as it may be. Do it in some way, capacity that works for you. And then allow the Spirit, allow yourself to continue to open yourself up to deeper intimacy. As I said, Jesus shows up and he makes that space. He begins to be a neighbor. And by the end of his story, he's calling these folks his friends. And I think that that's our desire and our hope is that we would not just make acquaintances, but we would develop meaningful and hopefully transformative relationships with our neighbors. As a caveat, I just want to say this doesn't exclude us from loving our neighbors who are around the world, who don't live in our neighborhoods. I'm not saying that. But I do think in a world, especially with social media, where every problem all over the world is available to us to worry about and care about, it can be a bit overwhelming. It can be a bit like, where do I even begin? And I think we can uh, maybe find a sense of purpose, direction, and maybe even comfort in the words of Jesus to love our neighbors ourselves. As we hear him say to this teacher at the end of this parable, go and do likewise. As I said, Jesus became flesh and blood. The Almighty became just like us. He moved into the neighborhood and he moved his neighbors from enemies to friends. And that, I think, is no small thing. It may sound simple, it's sure not easy. But I do believe it can change the world. That it can bring about a sense of restoration and transformation like anything we could imagine. Sometimes as Christians we have these really big grand ideas about what it means to change the world. Yet when we look at the Jesus, he lived his entire life within a place not much bigger than Pulaski County. <laughs> and he walked and he spent his time with about 12 guys and a group of women and he cared for them. And he invested in them. He was a neighbor to them. He loved them. And he changed the world. Well, we're here today, and I think in some way, part of the reason we're here today is because we have been transformed by this long line of neighbor love that started with Jesus. 
was passed down to his disciples and passed down and passed down and found its home in you and me. Simply because Jesus moved into the neighborhood. So I would challenge you, but also encourage you that Jesus has made himself a neighbor to you. Uh, May you love like he has loved. Get to know some names. Have a barbecue in your front yard. Go borrow some sugar. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you have befriended us. Thank you that you have moved into the neighborhood. The God who was far, who was so other, this almighty who was beyond recognition, has made himself known. You have made yourself known to us in our midst. God, thank you that even though Jesus has ascended, your spirit is still present amongst us. You're still our neighbor, dwelling in us, calling us together, loving us, challenging us. God, continue to give us eyes to see that you're at work in this world. Give us hope, uh, the grace to believe that despite the isolation, despite the disconnection of this world, that restoration is possible. And God, it begins in the restoration of our own hearts. It begins with your spirit working in us, and it extends out in our love of our neighbors. God, help us to know we are loved by you so that we may love likewise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Setting the Table, a podcast from the Table Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Little Rock. Setting the Table is available on iTunes and your favorite podcast apps. You can learn more about us at thetablelittlerock.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at thetablelr. And we'd love to have you join us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at Red and Blue, Arkansas in downtown Little Rock. Our address is 1415 West 7th Street. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good.